Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Well, good morning. I told the first group, and I need to tell you too, just to remind us of how blessed we are. Can you imagine another congregation anywhere that sends half of their music ministry somewhere else and has music like that? We are just so blessed by God and by the people who serve in that. We want to thank Sandra for that amazing solo, for John for leading us this morning in all the music ministry. Well, welcome. Whether you're here on campus or whether you're listening online, we're excited to have you here and be a part of our services today. For those of you who are newer to it and may not know me, I'm Mike Osborne. I am the executive pastor here at the Heights and I get the privilege of serving in that capacity week after week. But this week, I get the added pleasure of being able to be the one who brings you the message this morning. So we're excited about that. And I want to start out by asking you a question. How many parables are there in the Bible? Now, I, uh, I began to think about that as I was preparing for today's message. And so not knowing the answer, I decided to go to my go-to source, I asked my wife, (laughs) and she surprised me because she came back with the answer, don't know. And so I decided, well, maybe I need to research deeper. So I began to go through various sources and, and various resources and look and spent several days doing that and came to the conclusion that as usual, my wife was right. Nobody seems to know how many parables there are in the Bible. There's no definitive answer to that because, see, the basic definition of a parable is a simple story that teaches or illustrates a truth. But then when you apply that to the different stories, depending on how broadly you apply it or how narrowly you define it, it changes what you decide is a parable and what is not a parable. And so when it comes to the parables of Jesus, scholars differ. Some say as few as 24 parables are attributed to Jesus. Others say as many as 50 are attributed to Jesus. Some say across the whole Bible, there are as few as 100 parables, or there are as many as more than 250. So after reading and studying and coming to all of that, I came again to the conclusion there are two correct answers to the question I asked you. How many parables are in the Bible? The first one is my wife's correct answer, which says, don't know. And the second correct answer is this, a whole bunch of them. (laughs) And while there are a whole bunch of parables in the Bible, most folks kind of seem to agree that the best known of all the parables, the best recognized of all the parables is the parable of the prodigal son. People recognize that parable not only in the church world, but in the secular world, in the literary world. In fact, Charles Dickens said of that parable, he said, it is the finest short story ever written. And so we look at this parable of the prodigal son And that's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. You know, we just came out of a a 30-week series on the Ten Commandments, uh, or rather three-month series, not 30-week, three-month series on the Ten Commandments. Randy's going to get me for that one. 
uh, three-month series on the Ten Commandments. We're going to do a three-week series on the prodigal son. And we're going to look at it each week from a different perspective. We're going to get a different vantage point. We're going to kind of focus in on a different character in it over the next three weeks. And we're going to look at this. And so if you would this morning, if you'll go ahead and turn with me to the 15th chapter of Luke, and we're going to look at the uh, the parable of the prodigal son. And I think as we do today, and as we do over the next couple of weeks, one of the things you're going to discover is that For some of us, we did not necessarily know the story as well as we thought we did. We did not know it exactly as Jesus presents it. So Luke chapter 15, and we're going to find the the parable of the prodigal son beginning in verse 11. But before we get to that, we kind of need to set the backdrop. We need to set it into the context of where it is so that we better understand what it is Jesus is trying to teach in this parable. So over, if you look at the chapters preceding chapter 15, you'll see that over these months, Jesus has been traveling around the region and traveling around. He is teaching, he is sharing about God, the father. And as he is doing this, people fall into one of two camps. There is a group of people that are hearing what he's saying, hearing what he's teaching, and they are attracted to it. And then there is another group who has been hearing his messages, and they're upset by them. And in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we see the two groups. So look at verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hearing. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's our two groups, the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes. And I think you can probably figure out which group is which. Which one is the ones attracted to what Jesus is saying and which is the ones who are upset by what Jesus is saying. So who are these two groups? Who are these folks that are tax collectors and why do they seem to be lumped together with sinners and why do they seem to be in opposition to the religious folks, the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, for the Jewish people of that day, the tax collector was a Benedict Arnold. He was a traitor because the tax collector was a Jewish person, Jewish man, who entered into a business agreement with the Roman Empire. In other words, he kind of bought a franchise, a tax collecting franchise, if you will. And so what he would do then is his task was to collect these taxes from the Jewish people for the purpose of supplying the army of Rome. In other words, he's collecting the money that then allows Rome to occupy their country, occupy their area, and Rome and their army were horrendous. They were horrible people. And here this Jewish man, this tax collector, is among those making it possible. So they wanted nothing to do with him. I mean, they considered a tax collector to be the lowest of the low because of what he was doing, because of what his business did. And so they're kind of the social outcasts. They wouldn't even understand why a rabbi or teacher would even talk to him, much less spend any time with him. 
And then the other part of this group that's attracted to him are sinners. Now, that's a word we've heard in church before, haven't we? But what they're talking about here in this passage is not the truth of the fact that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yes, that's true. We're all sinners. But in the first century, sinner was a classification, a class of people. It was made up of those who were physically and morally deficient as they saw it. It was the people who were diseased and deformed. It was the people who were depraved. It was folks who were in occupations such as prostitute and and just the kind of people that right society didn't hang around with. And so you've got the tax collectors and the sinners, the social outcasts, the, the people that were looked down upon by the righteous religious folks. And then along comes Jesus teaching and preaching a message that gives them hope. No wonder they were attracted to it. But the fact that they're attracted to it, that they have come near to hear Jesus, that they're crowding in so they can hear more about this amazing story Jesus is telling, is what upsets the Pharisees and the scribes. See, they're the keepers of the law. They're the, the religious regulators, if you will. I mean, they spent their time making sure that everybody was following every jot and tittle of the law. And not just the Ten Commandments, not just that initial part. They're making sure they're also following all the extra laws they had added on over the years. Now, they spent a lot of time getting ready for their task. They had spent most of their lives studying Scripture. The Pharisees had memorized, memorized the Torah. Now, you want to know what the Torah is? Think the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We get an idea of what they memorized. If you've got, you know, if you're listening today and using a Bible app, you've got your iPad or your cell phone and you're doing that, go into your Bible app and go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Just go ahead and get there while I'm talking. And then when you get there, Begin to scroll forward. See how long it takes you to get through Genesis. Exodus. Keep on going till you get to the end of Deuteronomy. Or until your arm falls off. Whichever happens first. And if you have a physical copy of the Bible, I want you to take it, open it up, find the very end of Deuteronomy. Stick your thumb or your finger there and then go back to the beginning to Genesis chapter 1 and look at how much is between your two fingers. That's what they memorized. I felt all proud when I memorized Psalm 23. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you, Psalm 23 is a fourth of one page in my Bible. I mean, they spent this time learning and working on it and trying to to be righteous in all of this. 
And so now they have spent all of this and done all of this in their lives. And now these people who are far outside of what they see as those who are right and those who should be ministered to, now they're coming into Jesus and it upsets them. And so they grumble. And they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In other words, what they say is he's receiving sinners and fellowshipping with them. And the truth of the matter is, they're right. That's what he was doing. You know, the word receive, when you see that, it kind of sounds passive. You know, he receive, when they show up, he, he pays attention to them. But what Jesus is doing is anything but passive. This word is used by Luke six other times in his writings. And every time it has the idea of he is eagerly expecting He's earnestly waiting. He's drawing them in. He's welcoming them. In other words, he's going out and bringing them in and inviting them to fellowship and to spend time with him. Well, it's no wonder the Pharisees are upset, right? He's bringing in the outcast to church. They're sitting in their seats. And now as we look at the rest of chapter 15 of Luke, everything in the rest of the chapter is in answer and in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees. They said, we don't understand him. I mean, this man receives sinners. And so Jesus begins to share some truth with them. And, you know, we can look at Luke chapter 15 and say it's three different parables. A parable of a lost sheep, a parable of a lost coin, and a parable of a lost son. But we can also make a case for really it's one parable in three parts. Look at verse 3. It says, so he told them this parable. And he begins to roll. And he goes through the three of them, and there's not really any indication that he's you know, acknowledging this as a second parable or a third parable. He's just putting them all together. So you can make it a case for all three of them go together. There's three parts of one parable, one teaching, and they are. So before we get to the parable of the prodigal son, we need to take a couple of minutes and look at the other two. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 4. Jesus says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And as Jesus is telling this parable, this story to the scribes and the Pharisees, to the religious leaders sitting there, to the first team, if you will, the all-stars of the religion, as he's sharing that with them, they would have been nodding their heads. Because see, it made sense to them. I mean, it makes economic sense. You guys got a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off and loses it. That's 1% of everything he owns. It only makes sense to go and try to find it. They saw value in that sheep. And they go, yeah, 
That's right. Then look down in verse 8. It says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So he's telling the story now, the woman and her coins, and they're nodding even more vigorously because now this makes even more sense. Now we're talking 10% of her wealth has gone lost. If you lost 10% and you had a chance of finding it, you would look for it, right? Only makes sense. There's value in that coin. But then comes the little twist. And I didn't read it in the first one, but let's go back and pick it up. Verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then again, verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, he's telling them these two stories that they all agree with. They can all see it. Yeah, that's value in a sheep. That's value in a coin. And now Jesus turns the corner and he says, but what about people? What about people? And so, see, he sets them up and sets us up for what's to come. So you saw value in a sheep. You saw value in a coin. But he's looking at the scribes and the Pharisees and saying, you don't see value in people. And so that brings us to the parable of the prodigal son. And as I said, you know, we're going to be dealing with this three weeks in a row, and we're going to be looking at it from different vantage points and different characters. And today we're going to be looking at it from the father. We're going to look at what we can learn about the father in this story. And in doing so, we're going to see that what Jesus is teaching here about the father is totally unique and different than anything these people were used to. And we're also, I think, going to learn that, as I said, maybe we don't know the story quite as well as we thought we did. But let's pick up reading in verse 11. It says, I was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So as we look at this story, I said, you know, we're going to kind of, I think, notice some things that are uh, maybe slightly different than what we thought through the years. And the first is this whole idea of prodigal. You'll notice it's not in the scriptures. That, that word's not there. It was, you know, used later to designate the story. And that's not unusual. There's nothing wrong with that. And so, you know, years after the writing, it was designated as the story of the prodigal son. And through the years, what many of us have understood or believed prodigal to mean is wayward or rebellious or runaway. But that's not what the word prodigal means. The word prodigal means to lavishly waste, to spend to the point of poverty. Now, having said that, it can have a positive connotation and it can have a negative connotation. And we'll talk more about the positive sense of the word later. But right now we're going to look at the negative because that's how it applies to this son here. He has been designated the prodigal son, not because he was wayward, not because he ran away. He's been labeled prodigal because he wasted what he had. He was irresponsible. He was a spendthrift. And so we have that idea of what he's like, who he is, what he's doing in all of this. And then as we look at the story, what we're going to discover here is what we see the father doing, how we see the father responding to both the younger and the older son is totally extraordinary. It is not what this crowd expected to hear. Remember, he's sitting there, he's talking to a first century crowd of tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and scribes. And none of them would have expected what he's about to say about this father because it was not how a father would have operated. Let's look at it a little more closely. Here's what happens. The younger son comes to his father and he demands his inheritance. Now, when do you normally get an inheritance? 
Not a trick question. When do you normally get the inheritance? Most times. When somebody's died. Yeah, when they're dead, you get your inheritance. But no, he's coming to him now. And basically, what he is saying to the father in that culture particularly is this. I wish you were dead. I got no use for you, father. I don't want anything you have except your stuff. I want the stuff, but I don't want you. I mean, that was scandalous. That was unheard of. And these folks listening to it, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes, they would have been thinking, get him dead. Let him have it now, this arrogant son who would come with this ridiculous request. Give it to him with both barrels. What does scripture say? What did Jesus say? He said he divided up his property. Unheard of. Unheard of. And if it had happened, at that point, the father would have declared the son dead to him. Dead to him, dead to the family, dead to the community. And that would have been no expectation of nor desire for that young man to return. But what did Jesus say? He says he's watching for him. He's waiting. It says when he was still way off when he's coming back, he said he was still way off and the father saw him. The father's looking for him. The father's waiting for that moment when he will return. He's anticipating it. He's longing for it. Again, unheard of. That's not how a father in the first century would have acted. This story's getting strange. And then when the son shows up, he's, he's got his plan in place. You notice he'd been practicing his speech. And he says, when I get there, I'm going to tell my father this. He's got his negotiation in place to not be brought into the family. He's not really expecting that to happen, but just to be able to kind of get back where he can have some food, have a place to live. But before he can even get into his spiel, before he can even do his sales pitch, the father says, whoa, 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 stop. And he turns to his servants and he says, bring my robe, bring my ring, bring my sandals. And he takes off this boy's filthy rags and replaces it with his robe. What kind of father is this? I don't know any like that is what every one of those guys is thinking. And even with the older brother, when the older brother disrespects the father and won't come into the party, what does the father do? He doesn't ignore him. He doesn't say, well, his choice, which is what the father normally would have done in that day and time. He comes to the son. He comes to the son and entreats him. He comes to the son and begs him to come into the party. So we've got an unusual story and an extraordinary father. And it's rocking the world of those who hear it. And so as we look at this passage of scripture and We see all that the Father is doing and everything that's taking place. There's so much we can learn about God from this. But a lot of it we're going to pick up over the next two weeks as we see how the Father interacts with first the younger son and then with the older son. 
And so what I want us to do this morning, we've kind of set the stage a lot. In fact, now my sermon's starting. You can start timing me right here. All the rest was just introduction. Now, what I want us to do this morning is look for a major theme that is in this 15th chapter. Listen as I read some of the verses and see if you pick up on what it is. And and I'll I'll give you a little help along the way. In verse 5. It says, and when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice. Verse 7, so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. Verse 9, and when she had found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me. And then in verse 10, so I tell you, there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner. In verse 24, for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. In verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, it was a little subtle there, but did you pick up the theme? Yeah, the theme is rejoice and celebrate. See, in this passage, as Jesus is sharing this teaching, one of the things he is sharing is getting them to understand the God of joy. See, central, the centrality of the gospel message is about a creator who rejoices. God rejoices. Now, when you think of God, what do you usually think? A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, what we know, believe, understand, and think about God shapes our lives, determines our decisions, directs our destinies. What do you think about God? How do you see him? Many people kind of see him as that judge, don't we? He's up there and he's impartial and he's solemn and, you know, he's dispassionate. And some see him kind of as a judge who's just waiting to get us. He's up there waiting to punish us. He's waiting for us to mess up so that he can serve sentence on us. How do you see God? Let me ask you this. Do you ever see like Zephaniah, the Old Testament prophet, saw him? Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 17. You see it there on your screen. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice, there's that theme again, over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Some of your translations say with shouts of joy. Now be honest. Have you really thought about the fact that God shouts with joy over something that happens in your life? Scripture says he does. So what is it that causes God such joy. We saw it in verse 7. 
in verse 10, he's already told us. What is it that causes God that kind of joy? That one sinner would repent. One sinner would repent. Brings God great joy. See, God searches for us, Scripture tells us. God cares about us. And he wants us to know him. And so what brings him joy is when one of us, his creation, repent and experience his grace and his forgiveness. When that happens, God shouts with joy. You know, there in verse 10, it says that, you know, before the angels in heaven, there's joy rejoicing before the angels in heaven. Many times, I'm sure you've heard it, hear people say, well, you know, the angels in heaven rejoice every time a sinner is saved. You've heard that kind of expression, something similar to that? Verse 10 says, no, that's not it. It's not the angels rejoicing, it's God rejoicing. He says it's before the angels. It's in the presence of the angels. It's God the Father rejoicing over you and I as we come to know him, as we repent and turn to him. That's what brings God great joy. What kind of things bring you joy? Does money bring you joy? Does finding money bring you joy? I think all of us, you know, find some unexpected money. That makes us joyful, happy. But let me ask you a question. How much does it take for you to be joyful? You're walking down the street and you see a penny on the sidewalk. Does that really make you joyful? In fact, most people nowadays won't stop and pick it up even. What does it take? Quarter, dollar, $20, hidden treasure, buried loot. What does it take to bring God joy? How much does it take to bring God joy? One. One sinner who repents and comes to him. C.S. Lewis says of Christ, he died not for men, but for each man. And if each man had been the only man made, he would have done no less. One repentant sinner. One person brings God great joy. Each person that turns to him causes him to break out in a party. Think about the stories. What do we have? A lost sheep that got found and what broke out? A party. A lost coin that was found and what happened? Party. Lost son who was found. And what happened? Party. And the amazing thing is that in heaven right now, there is an ongoing party because across this globe, continually, constantly, there are people who are repenting of their sins and turning to Jesus. And each time, the party just intensifies. Think about that if you're a believer. If you're somebody who has repented of your sins, turned to Jesus and experienced salvation. Think about it. When you did that, God partied. 
partied for you. And if you're not a believer, understand this. That just like the father in the story, if you haven't turned, if you haven't repented yet, he's waiting. He is eagerly awaiting you to come. You know, I said earlier that that whole idea of prodigal has that negative sense that applied to the son, but it also has a positive sense because it can also mean, yes, spending everything, but spending everything in generous giving. And that's what God does. That's what God did for you and for me. He spent everything. He didn't hold back. He sent his son. And so God spent himself to the uttermost at the cross. He spent himself into poverty as he sent his son to die for your sins and for mine. Jesus, though he was rich, spent it all for you and for me. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might be made rich. That's how much God loves you. See, God wants you to understand. He loved you. He loved me so much that he was willing to lavishly spend everything for us. And in doing that, he tells us about our value. What value does God put on us? We see it at the cross. I mean, let's be honest. The value of something really is determined by how much somebody's willing to spend, right? I mean, you may have a car that you want to sell and you say, it's worth $5,000. I'm going to be honest with you. It's not worth $5,000 until somebody gives you $5,000. If nobody's willing to give you more than $2,000, your car's probably worth $2,000. What's our value? What God was willing to pay for us which is what Jesus did on the cross. How'd you come into the service today, whether you're online or whether you're here on campus? How'd you come into the service today? Were you kind of like the young son at the beginning of the parable? I mean, you got a bit of arrogance about you. You don't think you really need anybody. You don't need anything. You just kind of came in with that swagger about you. Or maybe it doesn't show so much on the outside, but it's on the inside. Or maybe you were like that younger son later on in the story where he found himself in the depths in the pig pen with nowhere to turn. And that's kind of how you feel today, hopeless and helpless. Or maybe you came in this morning and you're like the older son. And you really can't give forgiveness because you've never understood and experienced forgiveness. Or maybe you're like the sheep in the first parable. And you just kind of wandered until all of a sudden you're so far away you don't know how to get back. But see, the good news for you is this, that no matter which one of these you are, no matter where you are in the journey, Jesus eagerly awaits you. Jesus is welcoming you, calling you to come back. He wants to replace that 
filthy rags of sin with his robes of righteousness. Peter said, the Lord's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's desire for you. Once you understand something this morning, if you're listening at home or you're here in the auditorium with us, you fall into one of two categories. You're either lost or you were lost, but now you're found. There's nothing else. There's no in-between. You know, sometimes we try to make it sound a little nicer, but it's lost or found and nothing in between. You know, and whether we're talking physically or spiritually, being lost means being separated and not knowing how to get back. Not knowing how to return to where you need to be. And that's why God sent his son to show us the way. To provide the way. To be the way. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, we read, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent. And see, repentance doesn't simply just mean a change of heart. It's a change in action. It's a change in direction. It's a change of both the mind and the will. It's acknowledging where we were. And realizing we don't want to be there anymore. We don't want to be lost. We want to be found. And repentance doesn't just denote a change. Just any change is okay. No. It's a change from what was wrong to what was right. It's a change from sin to righteousness. And it comes about because of God's love for us. This unusual, unbelievable love of a father that despite everything we do, he still cares. God said, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. Scripture says God is eagerly waiting. Are you ready to turn? And run towards him. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, but we thank you even more for your love. A love that makes no sense to most folks, Father. That you could love people like us enough to lavishly spend everything, to send your own son to die on the cross and to pay the price for our sins. Father, wherever we are today in our journey in life, whether, Lord, we're that arrogant, self-sufficient younger brother at the beginning of the story, the broken younger brother later in the story, the the stubborn older brother, Lord, whatever we are, Lord, in our journey, 
Father, may we feel your presence, your love. And Lord, may we experience your joy by repenting and turning to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.